So I did a kind of a merger of lectures and we had the videos, etc. So we finished at 5.2, so it's now just gone 5 past, so we should be good with a 10-minute break, and I hope to get through this session in a timely manner. So, synaptic transmission part 2. Question. <laughs> Ten seconds. Okay. Wow. Okay. So there's been an incident with some pesticide. But even though this young boy's, uh, this five-year-old boy's mother tried to wash off the material, he still turns pale and begins to sweat, abdominal cramps, foul-smelling diarrhea, and spontaneous urination and salivation, and his eyes are water watering. So what kind of responses do we have here? Do you know the acronym SLUD? Right. So we have our SLUD responses, excess salivation, lacrimation, urination, etc. What is responsible or what, what neurotransmitter is responsible here then? Acetylcholine. So, but we have a pesticide. So is the pesticide acetylcholine or is it exacerbating the acetylcholine responses. It's exacerbating the responses because it's actually an esterase inhibitor, so it's reducing the breakdown of our neurotransmitter. So in essence, then you have the effects as though there's essentially more acetylcholine available to act on the receptor. Synaptic delay. So we discussed our, our processes or the steps that need to take place with regards to us having our synaptic transmission, the impulse, the calcium opening, liberation of the vesicle, etc., etc. And all of these things take time, even a slightly a bit more time if you're using a, a G protein receptor. Thinking about our quantal release of our neurotransmitter, we have a few terms here to start with. So we want to think about our probability and our number 
of vesicles that are available for exocytosis. And if we multiply those together, we have an idea as to the number of vesicles that we might expect to participate in the activity of exocytosis. So we're going, about, we're going to think about some things called quanta, quantum, quanta release. So here we have an experimental preparation. There are low levels of calcium here. And when we think about our quanta or our vesicle, well, when we, as we know, our calcium is responsible for our vesicular release. So we think about our quanta in this preparation we expect that each vesicle should have around the same amount of neurotransmitter contained within it. So we like to see a nice, nice standard peaks here. This is a muscle preparation. That's why it's an EPP, an end plate potential. So nice, even peaks indicating that we have a similar response and that there is the same amount of neurotransmitter released. Here we have a double peak in the bottom here. So perhaps two vesicles were released on that occasion. Our characteristics. So let's just move down to our miniature EPP. So our smaller amplitude end plate potential and this can be summated so we have multiple EPPs and we have summation of this to produce a large EPP. So we have our quant, so we spoke about quanta, we have quantal size. So our quantal size depends on our actual postsynaptic response once the vesicle is released from the, from the terminal. Our quantum content relates to the number of vesicles that are released. So we have our quanta, our vesicle, our quantum content, the, uh, the number of rele vesicles released, and the quantal size, the effect of the response essentially dependent on the number of molecules we have per vesicle. And we see, at least in, in, in this muscle preparation, that we can summate our responses. Some select substances that can alter our transmitter release. So we, we're thinking of botulinum toxin here. So we discussed the whole process um, with our vesicles. So our vesicle containing our neurotransmitter, our V-snares, and our T-snares. And in botulinum toxin, we have bacterial protease. And this cleaves our synaptobrevin, so one of our snare proteins. And so doing this, we have disruption of our docking of acetylcholine-containing vesicle. 
so therefore you cannot release acetylcholine. So of course, what do we expect? We would expect weakness. Tetanus toxin, and this image is by Dr. Bell, the same Dr. Bell who, uh, who we know from Bell's palsy. He did this painting, and this posturing is called epistotonus, and this was seen in persons who unfortunately were infected with tetanus toxin. So the toxin gets into the lower motor neuron and is able to, again, decrease our vesicle release. So cleavage of synaptobrevin. So we're not able to release our vesicle of neurotransmitter. But previously, where we discussed we were stopping our release of acetylcholine, in this case, we're stopping our release of our glycine from our interneuron, our Renshaw cell, so we have disinhibition of our signal and we end up with muscle spasms. So here, tetanus toxin acting right here, so we don't have release of our glycine, so we don't have any inhibition anymore. seconds. Two. One. Okay. We have people going for decreased content. So we've blocked essentially our voltage-gated calcium channels. So if we block our voltage-gated calcium channels, we cannot release our vesicles and by definition when we stop our vesicles being released our vesicle is our quantal content so we decrease our quantal content we don't have any impact on the size so the amount of uh, neurotransmitter within the vesicle is unaffected So just reiterating what happens there. So we block our calcium and we cannot release our neurotransmitter. Blockage of our voltage-gated potassium channels. We now increase our duration of our action potential. So we widen the action potential. We have our increased influx of calcium the voltage-gated channels. I think we had a question like this in the previous session. So we now will lead to enhanced muscular contractions due to, if we're using our new terminology, increased quantal content.
thinking back to our synaptic potentials. Remember, we had our graded potentials, but because we're now looking at a, a multipolar neuron in this instance, we're going to call them our synaptic potentials, receptor potentials, if it was a sensory modality, sensory receptor. So we have a dendrite making contact, sorry, an axon making contact with the dendrite here. We're taking a recording of what's happening here at the dendrite and the voltage here in the soma. And we see, if we look at this graph here, there is a, dec a decrease in our signal. And that's as expected because we said that our graded potentials were expected to degrade. So our synaptic potentials are going to degrade in this instance. So we have a reduced end um, postsynaptic potential, excitatory postsynaptic potential, sorry. So we can summate our signal. We can increase the chances of having uh, an action potential develop. We can just keep firing an action potential from one axon, and this would be our temporal summation. And then here in the graph, we can see how the excitatory postsynaptic response has been summated when we've taken the recordings. And our aim is to get our signal to the impulse initiation zone so that we can be above threshold, reach the threshold, so that we can have our action potential. We can also summate our signal in space. So what do we call summating in space? Well, we just add some axon contacts. So rather than one axon, we have two axons firing. And again, we see an increase in our EPSP. So in this graph here, the far, the far right graph, we have a signal which was sub-threshold. It wasn't big enough to allow us to have our action potential, but once we reached our super threshold um, signal, then we're able to have our action potential. Thinking about things that happen when we watch scary movies, or what do we find scary with Halloween around the corner? I don't know if you guys know this show. It was revamped in the 80s, The Monsters. I don't know if it's still going. We have some classically uh, scary characters, shall we say, but it was actually a comedic show. It, it wasn't a horror show, but we see Frankenstein, Dracula's wife, Dracula here, and then they had a cousin who was actually completely normal. This is the front uh, image from a horror movie called The Ring. I don't know if anyone's seen it or anyone's into scary movies, but it's a very scary movie. I was scared when I watched it, at least when it got to the end. I was watching all the way through thinking, yeah, I'm doing well. I was watching in the dark, you know, trying to show off. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if, I, I don't want to give it away for anyone who's not watched it and maybe wants to watch it, but uh, that scene right at the end, let's just say my finger went straight to the light switch <laughs> at that moment. And that said, 
maybe in an effort also to make up from, uh, for keeping you back in the previous one, let's, uh, Ralph, could we have the lights? And uh, can we get these ones down? have it as dark as possible. Let's see if I can get this to work. Thank you very much, Ralph. So some people jumped part way through there. So what's the reason for showing this? Well, what do, we, what do the guys tap into when they come up with these horror movies neurologically? So there's something which they call the jump startle and... oh. Actually, before we go there, did you see me? Ta-da! So, this is a movie, if you haven't worked it out by now, I am from London. This was a little movie in my hometown, and I was in it. I was in this scene, although you don't see me in this actual image. And I had to run from the zombies, and I 
lovely co-actors in the movie here. Idris Elba and Jeremy Renner. Yep. Uh, but I was hanging out with these zombies down the bottom. And as I was alluding to, we have our pathway. So we just spoke about spatial summation and temporal summation and our fear response or actually our starter response, our acoustic starter response, which we use in, which is a, an example we see in uh, horror movies. So the intensity builds up, you know, you get the amygdala going, you have various visual images getting you all primed, getting that fear built up and until you get that sound coming in through your cochlea and both sets of information, so our fear processing and our sound information synapsing at our nucleus reticular, reticular pontus caudalis and then boom you have that potentiation and you get that startle. Removal and degradation of neurotransmitters, we already discussed, so pretty much you're going to have an enzyme to remove the transmitter or there's going to be some kind of reuptake process, so reuptake into the presynaptic terminal or we have, we, additionally, we can have our astrocytes aiding that process and breaking down our neurotransmitter into precursor, which can be fed back into the presynaptic neuron. Just an example here showing acetylcholine and a question. And we're actually near the end, so we're finishing really early to make up. Okay, so what do we recall about, okay, 59% would have hoped for a bit more of you to give the correct response, our bradycardia. So we have our um, cholinergic input, so acetylcholine action on the heart will actually cause bradycardia. Let's identify an effective treatment strategy for the peripheral effects of our insecticide. So our insecticide in the first case with the five-year-old boy. So what should we do? I'll give 10 seconds to make sure everybody gets their responses in.
Okay. So, yes, we want to block our acetylcholine receptors because remember, in that case, we had uh, we were affecting our acetylcholine esterase, so there was more acetylcholine around to give our SLUD responses. So if we block our acetylcholine receptors, then our patients could have some relief. Oh, there's another one. Okay. Again, an acetylcholine. Of course, in your exam, you'll have uh, more options to choose from, but just some simple questions to see if you can remember what should be happening when we release certain neurotransmitters. Ten seconds. Okay, so the correct answer is indeed dilation if we, uh, the normal effect for acetylcholine on the receptor. And that's it. Thank you very much. We just have one more session tomorrow.